Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. Coming up on the payoff, Brandon Novak was a professional skateboarder at 14 years old. And with that came a ticket to an incredible life. That incredible life, of course, if you can relate, was totally interrupted by drugs and alcohol. And it's a story of a guy who goes from a pro skateboarder at 14 to touring with the Grateful Dead shortly after that. And it's not like he was playing an instrument in the band. He was selling drugs wherever the band went. And he goes from touring with the Grateful Dead into heroin addiction, into getting thrown a lifeline by his best friend, Bam Margera, who tries to clean him up, but fails. Uh, Ultimately, addiction would win out. And the moment that Brandon surrendered, well, you know the story, it's cliche, but he started to win. And the guy is winning today. His story is absolutely amazing. Uh, And uh, he wants to help you. If, If you're having problems with drugs or alcohol, or if you have somebody in your life that's struggling with drugs or alcohol, this is the podcast for you. It's it's going to help you. Buckle up, and uh, this is this is a real good one, all right? But first, Kevin Souza. By the way, I... I... I hope you don't. Oh, and who's your buddy here? This guy. Oh, there's Novak. Novak, take a seat, pal. I've known him since he was 13. He was a pro skater that Tony Hawk signed on Pal Peralta, and then he ruined it all by doing heroin for eight years. Wow. But he wrote a book about it. It's called Dream Seller. And uh, it's on Bam, Ken- this is your friend, and you were a top skateboarder. Yeah. You spent most of your young life skateboarding and uh, learning the craft of skateboarding. You were a legend, I guess, right? Yeah, from about 12 years old on the show, yeah. and uh, we met Bam, me and Bucky Lasik. So you ruined it. Yeah, her- I- heroin helped me ruin it big time. Yeah. By often- Hello? Uh, Brandon. How's it going? What's up, man? It's Pete. How you doing? Good man, yourself? I'm doing great. I'm. Uh, it's me and uh, Mike is uh, the producer. He's the only other person on here. Okay, cool. How are you? Um, so I came. So we're in Texas, and I came in here to Mike's studio. Um, and he's got. He has a lot of people working here for him, uh, which is a shock because there were no people here working before. I, t- I said to everybody, I said, blink twice if you're being held against your will, but nobody blinks. <laughs> nobody blinks. So I think he's all right. I think we're all right. We're in good hands. That's good to know. I feel safe. Man, thank you. <laughs> thank you so much for, for taking the time, dude. Yeah, man. Thanks for uh, for thinking of me. It's wild to have something worthy to say. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. We know some of the same people. I grew I grew up in Philly, um, and I got, I got sober in a rehab, um, and then I lived in a, an extended care place, which is why your story, I think, really speaks to me. Um, just kind of the long-term recovery. It's whatever. It's not for everybody, right? But it's what I needed. It's what worked for you. And uh, your your sponsor, I've heard you talk about him, Lex. And I I have had the pleasure of being around him um, in just sobriety circles. You know, I m- remember a buddy of ours died. His dad passed away, and I got to sit next to Lex at the uh, 
just the dinner afterwards or lunch afterwards, and he's a great dude. And, you know, it's one of those small world things. I've, I've heard you talk about it. Just recently, I was like, oh, damn. And it's got to be the same same guy, Westchester, drug and alcohol counselor. Um, pretty cool world, man. Absolutely. It's, uh, you know, it's funny, these uh, all of these synchronicities that exist. And, and I, I, for so many years, and maybe you can relate, walked around just completely ignorant to them and then finally like uh you know i had this awakening i had gotten sober and had that spiritual experience but now uh, which now allows me to just be like hypersensitive and, and uh to and, and aware of of all of these blessings that take place such as that you know what i mean because even when when lex was was attempting to help me and he was helping me it wasn't even that he was failing because he was helping me unbeknownst to me um, although I, I wasn't in a position in life where I was staying sober, he was planting these seeds and, 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 uh, little did I know that one day they were going to like take root and, and grow overnight. Like they just ingested a, a pound of crystal meth. <laughs> um, and, 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 uh, and, and he was just doing what he does in his way and, 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 and making this not even program, but just sobriety looked very attractive. So he was just kind of, you know, gently, uh, you know, giving me these little pieces of, of something that I didn't know what it was, but it fascinated me and, and it, it, and it, it drawed me in. So one day I like, you know, got hip to, to what he had been feeding me and, and it all made sense because the stars aligned and it was like at that very moment, the sky parted and I just walked across the fucking water, you know? Yeah. No. And it, you talk about being hypersensitive. You're, you're in tune now. I like to think when I'm, when I'm working this program, right. 12 step guy. I'm like, when I'm working it, like I'm, I'm in tune with shit that's going on around me. And yeah. it's incredible because you talk about it. Like it took me, I'm similar to you, man. I, I went to my first meeting um, in 2002, I went, it was driving down to West Philly. I'd bottomed out. I took my parents' car, um, put it up on a median. Right. And, uh, yeah. and I called the police and I was like, you got to get me off this median. I'm trying to get down, trying to get downtown. They're like, you bro, you're coming with us, you know? And, uh, <laughs> and that was my first meeting in October of 2002. And I didn't have a year till November of 2012. And that's just how it was for me. You know? Yeah, I can relate to that. You know, I, I, I was kind of one of those guys, uh, for so many years that they talk about being constitutionally incapable because I, I, I just w was not able to be honest with myself, let alone with anybody else. Cause my, my life was kind of just a, a big smoking mirrors, you know, watch the right while the left doesn't deal, um, hat trick, if you will. <laughs> and, and then once, once, like, I started uh, suffering the the repercussions from my actions, and uh, you know, a lot of things played a part, but I, I think mostly maturity, right? Like, it, at seventeen, walking into my first facility, I looked at it as if I had just been sentenced to life. Um, at thirty-eight, walking into my thirteenth facility, I had looked at it like I had just won the Mega Millions. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, my perspective of the situation just completely changed because I got to a point in my life where I could no longer deny 
justify or minimize the severity of my alcoholism, right? Like I, it was very easy for me to to look back after 22 years of active alcoholism and addiction um, and, and see clear as day that all I had done for the better part of 22 years was rearrange the furniture on the Titanic and, and my ship always fucking sank. And at 38, I, I found myself in a position where I was no longer accepting of it, right? And, and at that moment, I realized, like, fuck, I've placed me here time and time again. And then the common denominator in my problems were me. You know, like, everything that, that Lex had gently given to me, that, that every uh, group facilitator, psychiatrist, therapist uh, gently handed to me and it, it it didn't make sense until it made sense, and and uh, and uh, you know towards the end, uh, you know in a few particular days, um, time span like it all made sense, and that's when those seeds just like erupted, and I I I, I understood exactly what what they had all been saying to me all along. And and dude, it's not like you scripted it, right? Because we're I want to get into your story, but you find yourself. Uh, having that awakening at a at an airport, right? A TSA agent pulls you out of line, I guess, and won't let you get on a flight because you're wasted. Um, and and that is the moment of clarity for you. And it's, so it's not like and my same thing. I, I I was I was high and I was drunk at a dinner with the guy that was my temporary sponsor, and he just was like, "Look, dude, you need to go to rehab. Like, you need to like like and I because I'd never actually been to treatment, and I was like, "Fuck, man, I guess." I guess that 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 could work. I don't know what happened, but I, I went. <laughs> and, you know, I said, "Give me a week." Uh, went out and part, but I went. Um, and yeah. uh, and my life changed. So your life starts. You grew up. You grew up in Maryland in the Baltimore area. Yeah, born and raised in Baltimore, Maryland. And addiction in your family, like I know, you, just from your story, you're you've got brilliant people in your family. I guess your brother's a big time attorney. Your mom was some kind of doctor or scientist um yeah 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 my mother was a nuclear physicist my brother's an attorney uh who practices in the white house um and and then my father uh dies a direct result of the disease of addiction you know so my my brother and i have a sister as well who, who works in the hospital with or for my mother um my brother and my sister are both by a different man um they have no issue, nor have they ever with drugs or alcohol. Uh, I am the only child by my father, and and uh, I so I was an alcoholic, and, and my my father was an alcoholic, and his father was an alcoholic. So I believe that I was genetically predisposed to this situation. Yeah, same same as me. My 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 dad's side of the family. I mean, it's the old joke I use, but man, it, alcohol doesn't run in our, alcoholism doesn't run in our family. It gallops. You know, yeah. I mean, it's just, it's just kind of how it goes, man. So you, you grew up skateboarding. Uh, was, was that your first drug, a skateboard? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, it did for me what no other person, place, or thing was ever capable of doing, you know. It, 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 it allowed me to feel whole. It allowed me to feel part of. It allowed me to, to feel attractive, desirable, you know, all those things that, that, 
drugs and alcohol later on created that delusional narrative of uh, is what it did for me. And you became a pro skateboarder at 14. How, were you were you good enough? You know, you sign you sign right at 14. Um, yeah. So I was I was like design. I, I was at 14. I was the first skateboarder ever endorsed by Gatorade. Um, at 15, I was I was riding for Power Peralta. I was designing my prototype shape. I was you know touring the world with Power Peralta, Tony Hawk, the Bones Brigade. And, you what's know, what's at, that at, like at, for at, for a young guy? I mean, you're 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 doing Gatorade promos and commercials with Michael Jordan. Uh, you're in I mean, yeah. It, what the hell is that was, like, dude? It it was um. I can't even say it was surreal because skateboarding was skateboarding raised me. Um, and, and I attribute skateboarding really to my life today and, and sobriety as well. I'm a firm believer that skateboarding weeds out the quitters. Um, and, and, and my father was around just enough to let me know that he wasn't around. Um, and he was a pretty unsavory kind of fellow, if you will. He, he never held a job a day in his life. He taught me, one thing, if and when I go to prison, how to conduct myself. He, he ran with the Hell's Angels, so so he would wreak a lot of havoc when he would come home. Were those people in your life, like the Hell's Angels, like your dad's friends? Were they drifting around? Yeah, too? They, yeah, they would. Yes, absolutely, they would come around. You know, I, I remember being a kid, and my father one year I, he bought me a little a YZ fifty, and, and he got me these chaps. So I'm like. I don't even know, maybe like when six, seven years old and I'd be in the garage with all the, the Hells Angels guys and they'd be working on their bikes and I'd have my chaps on and I'd be watching my little yellow YZ50 <laughs> a part of. And they were all good guys. And and did, what, I, what I didn't know then that I, I see clear as day now, right, because I've had that awakening and, and I'm in tune with, with reality is, is that my father did the best that he could with what he had. You know, so I don't, blame him or 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 cite him for any of this it's that's not the reality of the situation how, um how did that impact you being around going to get, going to you know becoming a, a pro skateboarder at 14 um you're the first of your kind uh you have access now uh, how, did, how did that impact you as a young man and as an early you know and an addict right in the early stages before you even drank or used drugs yeah, it was it was really rad, man. You know, I I would go out to California and stay at Tony Hawk's house for extended periods of time, and you know, travel the world and and do these things that that to me at the time were very normal. Because again, like I was saying, skateboarding raised me. So so in order to stay away from the house, I never knew what kind of deal my father was going to present when he walked in the door. I, I would just skateboard from. From literally sun up till way into past sundown, um, and spend the least amount of time at home. So I was just so consumed with skateboarding that that was the norm. So, I, you know, it, to me, it wasn't like I was doing this crazy, elaborate, one of a kind stuff because that's all that I did. I ate it, I slept it, I dreamt it, I breathed it. Um, you know, and and I was so young, and so. It's now I look back and 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 kind of, you know, but that's that's life. It's all in retrospect, right? Live yeah. forward and learn backwards. And and now I can look back and see how how amazingly blessed I was at that age. But at that time, I 
I was just so consumed with just wanting to skate, wanting to talk about skating, wanting to be around skaters. And I just, just so consumed that I didn't really reap the rewards, if you will. Was there, was there a moment when you noticed that whatever drug, I mean, I know heroin became a big issue for you, um, <laughs> a huge issue, right? A monster like it does for just about anybody that gets involved in it. Um, but was there a moment when you saw the drugs had started to erode your performance skating, like that you could put your finger on and you were like, fuck, like this thing's yeah, got me. I, I could, looking back, so I'm out of, I'm, I'm from Baltimore and I was raised by all the skaters in Baltimore and, 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 and one of the household names uh, is Bucky Lasik and, and he's another pro out of Baltimore. And, and he kind of took me under his wing and he was the one that, that got me sponsored by Tom Braza and would take me out to Tony Hawk's house. And, and he was my, my mentor, my, my idol. And when I noticed the, the disconnection beginning to take place between me and skateboarding, the direct result of drugs and alcohol were, were like, Bucky would always come pick me up after school and would go skate all day, all night. And, and I slowly started making excuses as to why I couldn't go. You know, and, and, and two days turned into four, four turned into eight, eight turned into 16. And then before you know it, he stopped showing up. I stopped calling. My mother started asking questions as to why I'm not going with him. You know, like, I don't, I've never even talked about that till now, actually. But I, I, that's, those are the very beginning signs um, that I recognized that something was going on. Um, but I didn't, I wasn't even close to addressing it, right? Like, I yeah. it still wasn't even a, a thought in my mind. Well, because it's <laughs> exciting and it's awesome and it kicks ass. I mean, you know, and that's the thing. Like, I was huge into sports athlete. And the moment I, I started to drink and eventually started to use, but, I mean, the moment I started to drink, all I cared about was drinking more um, and and honestly, like, 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 girls you know like because i and i think that was more of an ego thing that just seemed cool you know like um it was just like i totally lost myself in this shit uh and it took me like you said a couple decades to actually wrap my head around how how huge this whole fundamental issue was right of just being an addict like like i'm the issue right like once you take drugs and alcohol away like i'm still pretty pretty screwed up uh, I, I've I've got to look into that, and I've got a. I've, luckily, we have a program that assists us in doing that. Right. That's the funny thing about it is is when I'm talking about these scenarios that took place, you know, decades ago. Before I even like like years years before I even entered into my first treatment center at 17, years before. So I'm talking 15, 16. The disconnection from reality that had already taken place is fucking astronomical. You know what I mean? From from my alcoholism and addiction. And I wasn't even at that problematic stage where people started, like, recognizing these red flags. But, like, I could see it. Because if you think about it, I, from from seven years old till 15, almost 16, when I got my first skateboard to when I completely hung it up and walked into my first treatment center, I, I ate it, I breathed it, I slept it, I dreamt it. Nothing else. Ma I had became it. You yeah. know, like, 
Like I had became the dream that I had always longed for. Nothing could have gotten better in my life at that time. And then when, when I'm forced with the ultimatum um, of going to treatment, saving my life because he's escape for power or quit the team, I, I didn't even have a breath of fresh air in my lungs when I said I quit. Huh. You know, so it's just insanity to think. And, and that's before even entering into my first treatment center. And we're going to get, uh, and I, you have such an incredible message and we're going to get to the recovery, like yeah. portion of it, right? Like we are now, actually, we're talking and we're living it. Um, and it, I can feel it coming <laughs> off you, but I, a couple of questions I have, dude, how do you go from being a pro skateboarder to ending up touring with the dead? I mean, how, like, how does how does that, cause we're pretty much <laughs> the same age, grew up around the same area. And I remember those dead shows, right? I mean, I never like committed, right? I never like went on tour with them actually, but I remember when they were come through like DC, Philly. Um, and uh, what was that like? How, how did that happen for you? How did that progression take place? Well, the so I, I got wrapped up with with some fellas that were were selling a lot of herb. They were having a lot of herbs shipped in, and and this is like obviously back in. The, 95 four, so way before it is what it's like today and yeah. herbs kind of like it's, it's as prevalent as a cigarette no um, it was off limits and, back then dude you could get yeah you, you get in trouble you know if you got caught yeah totally and and i connected with some guys that were having like hundreds of pounds literally shipped in um and and they were making a lot of money and uh I connected with them and, and this is when skateboarding was kind of, it was exiting the scene and, and now just partying and, and just doing whatever without responsibility or care was taking precedence in my life. And so they, uh, their connect that would ship the urban was a, a guy from San Francisco who was, uh, would follow the dead and was like a big, you know, fan of that whole world. And, so I kind of like got into it via uh, the money that could be made from it, the drug revenue and, you know, whatnot, the company, the drugs. So I got into it from a financial perspective with uh, drugs that I could get from certain guys that would follow the tour. And in doing that, then it just required me to travel to different states to meet these guys. <laughs> and then I would just do what they were it's doing. It's a job requirement. What's that? It was a job requirement. Yeah, it literally was. <laughs> and then it and then it became like, and but then keep in mind too, I'm still technically sponsored by Power Peralta, so I'm receiving, I'm still getting boxes of boards and product and and all that. So then I would go to these dead shows, and I'd have like ten, fifteen brand new boards, and I would just trade these boards for like. Uh, really good kind buds, prescription pills, any good drugs I could find, I was a trade, and they would love that because no one really ever had skateboards and stuff like that then. We'll get back to this conversation in a second, but right now, a word from our sponsors. From the host of the popular podcast, The Only One in the Room, Stash by Laura Cathcart Robbins is a propulsive and vivid memoir about the journey to sobriety and self-love amidst addiction, privilege, racism, and self-sabotage. Best-selling author Holly Whitaker calls it an irresistibly delicious story. And MacArthur Foundation fellow and best-selling author Kiese Lehman says Stash is emotionally riveting. Buy Stash by Laura Cathcart Robbins now wherever books are sold. 
Hey there, homeowners. Is it time to give your yard a complete makeover this summer? Villani Landshapers, a local family-owned business, has been transforming landscapes for more than 20 years. Villani Landshapers specializes in landscape design build, retaining walls, outdoor living spaces, and so much more. Request your free consultation today and check out their gallery of residential work at villani-landshapers.com. The all-new Chevy Colorado is made for more. Stacked with the latest in-vehicle technologies like a class-leading 11-inch diagonal center touchscreen and an extra-large wireless charging pad. Plus, it features wireless Apple CarPlay and Android Auto compatibility to make staying connected easy wherever your adventure takes you. Chevy Colorado. Made for more. Learn more at Chevrolet.com slash truck slash Colorado. Claims based on latest competitive data. And then you start you start to sell acid as a part of this, and you start to sell huge yeah. huge quantities. You're making yeah yeah a, a, a lot. You're making you're making a lot of money. How much acid were you selling? Well, I, we had a connect that would fly in um, again from San Francisco, and and he would different bring different guy a, or the same guy. No, a different guy. Right. Uh, different guy. But yeah, San Francisco was just kind of you know that was the hate Ashbury, yeah. you know it was like the, the it was like Jerusalem for for deadheads if you're a holy goer, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, um, and 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 this guy would bring he would fly into Baltimore and bring these raw crystal grams in and he would lay the raw crystal gram, and it, you know you get like thirty anywhere from thirty to fifty books from the crystal gram and a, a book is ten sheets. 10 sheets is a thousand hits. So when it broke down, we were selling like, I, I was selling the books for like three, anywhere from between three to 500. And so you're getting a thousand hits for three to $500. Wow. Uh, and they're lining up around the block. So, so money was coming in hand over fist at that point in time. And that's, that was kind of when. How much for people that don't know, which is probably for almost everybody, how much do a thousand hits go for? Well, I, if you can ballpark so, it. Yeah, I mean, I've been so disconnected from that world for a long time. I don't know what they go for today. Back then, I think they would go for a few bucks a hit, maybe. Yeah. Two, three, four, five dollars a hit. Yeah, so you're making a shitload of money. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, a thousand hits, if I sold it for a dollar, would be a thousand dollars. If I sold it for five dollars, it would be five thousand dollars. So, if I'm starting, that's a book. So, a book is, again, a thousand hits. If they're going for, if I sold them for five dollars, hit for five thousand, I'm selling them for three hundred. A book for three hundred, you can do the math. Yeah, well, I can't, but people, other other people can. <laughs> well, yeah, fact, yeah. I'm not a math guy. Yeah, it's funny, yeah. I'm not a math guy either, but I can break that down like a math genius. Or yeah, you right. ask me about like uh, 15, 15, 15, 30, 45, 60, 75, 90, 105. My heroin dealer used to sell bags of. Fifteen dollar bags of heroin. So I can do the fifteen really well too. <laughs> well, so was there a time when you're when you're starting to just deteriorate? Obviously, as a skateboarder, when you bump into one of your guys um, who was with you on the come up skateboarding and now is having success, and were they like, "Dude, what are you doing?" Was there anybody that grabbed you? There's, oh, like yeah. Like yeah. was there a there moment? One very, very, very embarrassing time that I'll never forget, and I'm like. You know, I'd, I'd been through the mill. My addiction definitely played its course. And, and um, I'm now, I'm not at the tail end. 
looking back, I know that I'm, I wasn't at the tail end, but at the time I felt like it was probably going to be the tail end. Little did I know <laughs> I still had another like eight to 10 years to play. But, but what it looked like for me at that period, my life was, um, I'm living in an area called Federal Hill in Baltimore City. Um, I'm living with this gay man um, who is the manager of this restaurant. The way that I pay my rent to live in his house is I would allow him to like shave my asshole uh-huh. <laughs> every like every few days. That was like his thing, and and then I could just take the money that I made from waiting tables at his restaurant and just buy heroin. Just really a meager existence yeah. to say at, at least at best. And uh, <laughs> and and one day. I'm waiting tables and I look up and it's like this crew of skaters come in and, and I could tell that like they were somebody the way they were dressed and, you know, just, you know, you're a sports guy. If you, yeah. can rec- you know, you could tell when someone walks into that stature, whether it's pro football player, baseball, basketball, whatever. For sure. And, uh, and, and, and they sit down and I try my best to avoid that table like the plague. And, and, and lo and behold, they, they insist that I take care of them. So I go over and I said, hey, can I get you guys anything to drink? And, and the one guy in particular looks up to me and he goes, Novak? And I'm like, yeah. And he goes, what the fuck happened to you? And that at the moment, it was just, everything in me just crumbled, you know? And, and because I could, I, again, my brain would create these delusional narratives, um, that allowed me to book that, like I said earlier, it allowed me to justify or minimize my disease of alcoholism or addiction. But on very few occasions, I'd be called out, and I knew that I couldn't deny it. And that was one of those occasions. Yeah, I mean, because you know, it sounds like you did a really good job. You, you, for me, I fell so you fell. I fell so deep into the abyss that, like, I there was nobody around me that could shame me anymore. Almost, you know. I, yeah. No. There were, totally. Yeah, there were obligations that I would have to show up to, and then I would just stop, stop going to those. So I, it's funny how you insulate yourself. Um, oh, one hundred percent. And yeah, it's just and and again, like I said, looking back, I thought at that time it was it was coming close to the end, and and I had no idea that I still had you know many years to play in that game, um, and and at the end of the real end is when I started completely disconnecting from any like you just talked about yeah. you know there was no there was no one in my life and if there was i could give a fuck less of what their opinion was with me because it, it was just it was i was in it to win it at that point and, and, and in between these periods you know bam who's bam Marger, who's like your best friend still is right yeah um yeah. who you know people know what's they can look up what's going on with him but he struggles with addiction um and mm-hmm. uh you know one, one of the jackass guys and, and viva la bam all that stuff but he what is one of your best friends from skating right when you were real young and he reaches out to you and says hey come stay with me right like get your shit together yeah and what in westchester that's that's how that integration emerged from baltimore to to westchester took place or pennsylvania for that matter yeah you know i I, I, I'm at this point, probably it was a few years after that incident where I was in that restaurant. Um, and I was called out by another pro skater, uh, a few years after I was, you know, things got worse, homeless, living on the streets. And I would occasionally stop into the skate shop in Baltimore and ask them for some money. 
But I really tried to avoid that because it was very embarrassing. But again, at this point, I started really not giving a fuck too much about people. Yeah, we're junkies, dude. Yeah, I mean, it's like... Yeah, yeah it's yeah. like... Well, in the beginning, I really cared. And as time progressed, it just faded away. And So one day, times were bad, and I couldn't come up with a couple bucks. I walked into the skate shop, and I said, hey, can I get a couple bucks? And they said, no, we're not going to give you money. But Bam happened to be here yesterday doing a demo, and he asked about you. And we said that you popped your head in occasionally trying to get money. And and he said, well, let Novak know if he ever wants to get clean. Here's my number. Have him call me. Um, again, the synchronicity, right? Like yeah. it was the day before. Uh, and I take that number. I put it in my pocket. Now, this is before cell phones are a thing. So, so you, all you have is pay phones, and the pay phones are 50 cents a call. And and to me, fifty cents is like a lot yeah. at yeah. that point. Yeah. Like at at fifty, you know, I need nine dollars and fifty more cents to acquire yeah. a bag of heroin. <laughs> like, I can do that math. Just, That's like what is that? Like five percent of getting what you need? Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. See what I mean? Yeah. Body, you got it. Um, <laughs> and uh, and and I, I didn't call immediately, but like three or four days later, I went to the payphone. I put the 50 cents in. I, I, I held on to the, to the, to the thing. Cause if he didn't answer, I had to hurry up and click, hang it up before the machine picked up, yeah. and took my 50 cents. <laughs> and, and it, he, it, it was a skate shop. He gave me the number to Fairman skate shop in Westchester. And I, and I said, the there. And the owner answered. He said, no, it's, it, it, he was, he, this is Fairman's. He was just in here, but he's actually next door at the restaurant. Do you want me to grab him? So again, the synchronicity thing yeah. was lining up. If he wasn't there, I, there was no way I would ever call back. Um, and he just happened to pop his head in. And so uh, they get him. I wait on the phone. Short story long. He offers me this um, this chance to, to get off heroin, get all the streets of Baltimore, and, and come live with him and start skating again. And, and that night, I was on a Greyhound bus from Baltimore to Westchester. Yeah. And that's where... You know, he said, look, I could live with him. I, at that point, he's filming the CKY videos, and he allowed me to be in there and, and to live at his house and to detox and skate. And, you know, and I attempted to do that. And I attempted to do that for a long time. And, you know, I'd, I'd say I'd, have, I'd make an excuse as to why I had to go back to Baltimore or I'd get kicked out. You know, it was a wash, rinse, repeat for a lot of years Yeah, until it kind of Talk, if you will. But you're on the you're on the ride, you know, with a, yeah. a, along with him, and and you guys are doing your thing, and it's almost I would imagine it's almost hard to get sober in that environment, whether whether your best friend wants you to or not. You guys are surrounded by like I remember Novak. It's funny, dude. I'm like a huge Howard Stern guy, and I knew who you were. I knew who Bam was, but I can remember you guys being on Stern, or he was on Stern, and he was talking about <laughs> you so much, and it was hilarious. And so you're providing a lot of a lot of happiness and good content for people, and you're generating money. Uh, and so it's got to be tough to get off the train at that point. Well, that was honestly one of the hardest things about all of it, right? Not really the Howard Stern era, because like I was, I, I kind of, I had done some things on my own that allowed me to stand on my own uh -huh. for for once. Like I had written the book. Uh, you know, I'm just get doing all these things. I had been on the Viva La Bam show, and I, I think Jack at that point maybe uh, my timeline's bad. But I, I started to kind of do some things to where I, I, I was the product. So, so it allowed me a little more lead way. 
But before that, in the beginning era of this this new chapter in my life of living in Westchester and getting off drugs, it was really fucking. It was really the 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 internal struggle was was just God. It was so daunting because. I had burnt every bridge in Baltimore. I'm living on the streets and I knew it, right? There was no delusion that like I could repair this. That was a no. But then now I'm allowed this opportunity to basically recreate my life in Westchester. Now I go to Westchester and, and I see as clear as day on this plate in front of me, this amazing opportunity that I have. Yeah. Like I can, I can literally take off in, in multiple directions and and like really make something of this and become very successful internally and externally. But I know in my heart of hearts that my addiction is so powerful that it's not going to last. Like I'm going to burn these bridges too. I saw it and I was like, I was unable to control it. You know, it's like a wildfire. You see it coming at you and you want to do everything to stop it, but you just can't. Yeah. Uh, and you're and that, that's what it was because, you know, talking to you, you understand this, the, the complexity and, and power of, of addiction. The helplessness you feel in that situation. Yes, that's exactly where I was. And like, so I knew that because I really wanted, I wanted human connection. I wanted, uh, you know, normality. I wanted structure. I wanted security. I wanted stability. I, I, that's, I, I wanted nothing more in my life than that. Um, but I knew that I, I, if, if I could get it, but I couldn't keep it because it, it was only a matter of time before I, I, I robbed, I lied, I stole, I cheated, I hurt, you know, the things that we do in order to get another one. Yeah. Um, so it was, it was such a fucking dichotomy that, yeah, God, it, it, it really, so I would make it a point, right? I just got my first ever driver's license at 41, almost 42 years old, Okay. I'm 43 now. Yeah. Um, so I never had a car or a license and I, I'd have cars, but it, when I'm living in Westchester now, like Bam had told everyone, like, don't give him heroin or any form of downers. Like they weren't addicts. Well, Bam has his issues now, but at yeah. the time no one understood addiction. So it was okay to do blow and drink because that's yeah. like socially acceptable, but pills and heroin, I like fall asleep in mid conversation. I steal your wallet. I disappear for days. So, so it was very well known to no one to give me that stuff. Um, but so I would make it intentionally really hard for me to get heroin. Like I would not go into Philly and cop because I was living in Westchester and it was too easy for me to get to Philly. And if I learned the access routes to get it here, then like I you were really done. Yeah. Burnt. Yeah. So, so I'd intentionally like only go back to Baltimore they never let me go back to Boston. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. what, what, what a life, right? It's so exhausting. We create all these boundaries. So yeah, yeah. Ah, yeah. So, so that at least prolonged the inevitable of me burning things to the ground like years, which was fucking a miracle for me. Um, so I made it very difficult in that, in that regards. But, but again, just knowing that the end was coming, it, it was, it, yeah, God. It's a yucky, you know. it's a yucky feeling. And then we, so, we, you know, we, we have all that, right. And, uh, you know, I can't keep here all day. I could, but so we get to that, that airport in Baltimore. Uh, is it in yeah. Baltimore? Yeah. So what, what happens as the miracle starts to, to transpire? How, how yeah. does, how does the whole thing take off? 
or literally it didn't take off, which uh, ultimately yeah. ultimately it did. But but how does that happen? It, yeah, totally. You know, again, they get started in the beginning of this. The maturity played a big part, and and seeds that were planted along the way just sprout. What what happened is at thirty eight, I'm I'm now like living back at my mother's house. But my mother had uh, burnt, finally had burnt all those bridges in Westchester. Everyone thought it was best that I left there. And I had nowhere else to go. And I'm back in Baltimore. And I'm sleeping at my mother's house. And my mother and brother served me with a restraining order. Now I'm not even allowed in my mother's house. So so I go from being nothing to eating out of trash cans, prostituting my body in Baltimore, to then ending up in Bam's house, Viva La Bam, Jackass kind of a household name, traveling the world, fucking doing amazing things like hanging out at the Playboy Mansion, fucking hey, just doing things that people would dream of doing maybe. Um, to now being back in Baltimore, literally homeless, walking the streets. Um, and and uh, a series of events take place. But ultimately, this woman says that she'll buy me a plane ticket if I want to come to Florida. Um, and I have nowhere to go. She lives in a hotel in Florida. She's a, she's a stripper, and, right? Yeah, okay. she's like a stripper, and it just doesn't look well. But I don't really have. I I, yeah. I don't really. It's not. I don't really. What are, have what are our options at this point? I right? I literally <laughs> have zero other options. Like not one. I swear to God, I have not one other option. My mother has now kicked me out of her house for real because before. My brother made her serve me with this restraining order. I get served with the restraining order, but then my brother would go back to D.C., so my mother would allow me to sneak into the house and sleep there at night and leave early in the morning. Um, but now my brother's starting to come around because he's getting hip to what my mom's doing, and, and she's all up in arms with it. And I, I get it. So, yeah. so I split, and, and now I'm at the airport, and I don't want to board this flight, but I don't have any other options and, and I attempt to board the flight, and the, the woman at the counter takes a look at me and says, uh, she asks if I'm under the influence of anything, and I said no, and she said, I believe you are, and you will not fly for 72 hours. So that's not like not like the next flight tomorrow morning. <laughs> three, three days. She wants to give me three days to sober up, <laughs> which, which I don't see at the time. Right? Yeah. My, my perspective of this encounter is that, like, she knows who I am, and 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 her, her son or daughter is an addict, and she's blaming her kid's disease on me. Yeah, how dare her piss on my parade? The reality is, the the situation, the, the the current state of mind that I was in at that time, and no one would allow me to do anything in public. So, <laughs> what I learned then, now that I didn't see then, is that the God of my understanding dressed up in the form of a, a TSA agent that refused me access to that flight. And um, I was just simply divinely inconvenient in just such a manner that a, a big enough gap was created from the last time I injected a, a bag of heroin into my arm uh, to have that moment of clarity to see what my life really looked like was. And it was like at that moment, it was like a, a, a fucking sequence, a timeline of just like a series of events that took place in my life from the first treatment center to the 12th because I was about to enter my 13th and all these just like, you know, they say before you die, you get like flash. Yeah. It was that that just appear like bang, bang, bang. And everything that Lex had told me, everything that, that these therapists had said, and it just, 
I had heard it all, but at this moment, I, I listened to him. I visualized it. I saw it. I internalized it. I processed it. I, I, I understood it. And, and it made sense. And I just got out of line. And I, I called Lex and, and I just said, please, can you help me? Can I, I want to kill myself. And he said, no, you're going to get on a train. And you're going to come from BWI Airport back to 30th Street Station. Yes. And this was Memorial Day 2015. And, and him and, and another dear friend who you may know, uh, John Cosgrove. I've heard of him, yeah. Um, that's, uh, they, they came and picked me up at that train station and they let me stay with them that night. And they, allow, they, 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 they sent me to see my parole officer in the morning and my parole officer granted me one more chance and sent me to, to, uh, and, and, uh, a Catholic charities rehab, right? Yeah. Yeah. And but what starts to happen? Test. I just, you know, what what started to happen is that for the first time I walked into a facility without a plan. I had no plan. But my my lack of options turned into the best of plans because it allowed me to just give you me, right? Like I, I was so tired of thinking, doing, and deciding for myself that like the willingness was a direct result of a higher power's action because I like if, if pardon my French, but if you would have told me to, to get naked, stand on my head in the corner and jerk off for five months straight, I'd say from when to when, you know what I mean? Like I was just, I was, I would literally, and, and because of that willingness that was not by my doing, my sobriety has been a mundane, um, which thank God and, and be, you know, fairly, fairly a simple process to this point because I was so beaten. I was demoralized. As they say, I was beaten in that state of reasonableness that, that I, I, I was a sponge and I soaked up all the suggestions they gave me. And I listened to every word they fucking said, because at this point I knew that my life depended on it. And it, it's not that cliche. It's how I was, you know, your life depends on this to drink is to die. Like, I didn't give a fuck about dying. Like that was actually welcome to me. Um, then the fight was over. My family could finally sleep peacefully. Like that was cool. What scared me into sobriety is, is to, to, to have that drink, to have that drunk, to drug, have that drink, have that drug, to not die and, and have to continue to wake up every day and do things against my will to get enough money to buy more heroin. That that's what scares me into sobriety and keeps me into sobriety. And I, 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 I still today with over seven years sober do the same things they told me in the beginning with seven days sober. Right. It's, uh, and, and, and I, I live my life by that today. You know, I, I really don't. I'm going to keep you for a little bit longer. I'll let you get out of here in like five, 10 minutes. If that's cool. Um, mm -hmm. So when you, end up going to this this treatment center and and you you stick with the long-term recovery model how much did that help you uh going that was fucking it was instrumental man it was it was you know i had i had the state uh medicaid insurance i had the chester county insurance and if, if, if you're a product of my environment 
state insurance that is, and you're, you're familiar with Chester County, that's like the Cadillac of state insurances. You get an automatic 90 days, no questions asked. Wow. Um, so so they, they throw me the 90. I, I settle in, totally accept the, the outcome, um, fully embrace this deal. I'm in it to win it. I know things are different. I know that I was the boy that cried wolf so many fucking times. And I believed it every time I cried wolf. Not every time, but most, the majority of the times when I said I was finished, I really believed I was finished. Unfortunately, I always underestimated the opponent that I was up against. Hence me getting beat the fuck out of every time I stepped in the ring. Yeah. Um, this time, like I could, I could understand the severity and the complexity of my situation. It, it, was, it was no longer deniable to me nor anyone else in the world. And so... For the first time in my life, I, I stopped fucking talking and I just walked and I let my walk do my talk. And and what that looks like is no more calls to my mother or letters to loved ones saying I've changed, things are different, I'm gonna fucking be the best version of me, blah blah blah. It, it was it was no phone calls, it was no letters, it was me showing up to group on time, actively participating, following the suggestions, remaining open minded finding a God of my understanding, making my bed, um, helping others in the community, doing my chore. And, and, and what I know now that I did not know then is that I was finally starting to work on the real problem. The drugs and alcohol are not the fucking problem. They're the solution. The problems that I started to address were my behaviors, my thinking, my attitude, my behavior. So by doing all of those things, I started to change. And I didn't have to tell people I was changing because they – they, they saw could it. watch my walk and my walk did my talk. And it, so then, you know, very, very slowly. And when I mean slowly, like after a year, you know, yeah. family members started to reach out a little bit, you know, um, old friends started to appear, but they were still very cautious. But that's what it takes. So. Like it takes like the willingness. And this is all, you know, I don't know shit, but this is my experience, right? Like the willingness I remember I went I went to that place Karen in Pennsylvania and I got done there yeah. and they were like, You gotta go somewhere else, dude. And I was like, Fuck. All right. You know, and that was never I you know how those treatment centers are. You lobby uh-huh. for like, you know, the last fifteen days of your thirty days about how you're not gonna go to an extended care place because you're you're still out of your <laughs> you're still out of your mind. And then uh and then they tell you that you're gonna go um, and I said, yes. And I was so out of it. I mean, I can remember showing up at the, the, um, extended care place. Uh, and, uh, it was in, it was actually in Bel Air. Uh, it was called MRP at the time. I think they're gone Maryland recovery partners, but I show up there and I'm still out of it. I still, everybody I'm seeing, I'm thinking has been in my life before. Um, and I'm not necessarily being negative. I'm just like, Oh, I remember that guy. Like, you know, uh, and I just thawed out there, dude, for like another five months and, and showed up. I worked at a KFC, you know, I went to every meeting they told me to go to pretty much. I, I left once. I remember I left a meeting once we would, we would get $50 a week. Um, if we had a job, right. They get, and that's, that was good. It, they put it in our escrow account and they give us 50 cash. And I remember this guy, David, um, was a counselor and he showed up at a meeting and as I was leaving, you know, and so I didn't hit my quota for the week and I was, went to get my money for the week and the guy gives me 25 instead of 50 and I'm like, yo, what the fuck? You know, I get, I get 50 bucks and he goes, no, nah, we, we caught you leaving a meeting early. 
And I remember thinking like, God damn it, they got me. And as I was leaving, Novak, he goes, hey, man, because he gave me the 25 now. I have this for seven days. And he's like, hey, you don't smoke, do you? I'm like, no. He's like, you can make it last. I'm like, I'm like God damn, you know? And, and that's, but that is the world that I grew up into a man in. You know, I mean, I, I learned how to work a, a cash register at KFC, which was like the hardest thing I'd ever learned to do. Um, and, and my whole life started to change. And that's what you guys have now. You have, you have Novak's house. Um, well, that's funny. Your story is really a fitting image of mine, right? Like I, I went to not Karen, different place. I stayed there for 90 days. Um, and then from there, the extended living, I went to a sober house where I lived for a year and my get well job was, uh, washing dishes at a diner called Marianne in Levittown, Pennsylvania, uh, for $6 an hour under the table next to a 14 year old kid named Brian, Yeah, you know, and, and that, that $6 an hour under the table. Now in my mind, I believe that I should have been the fucking president of the United States yeah. at that time, at the very least, um, <laughs> So, you know, I under, I had always heard people talk about humility and, and, and it, it sounded great, but it never made sense until it made sense. And that job allowed it to make sense for the first time. And, and watching those dishes um, next to that 14-year-old kid, it really became one of the biggest foundations of not only my sobriety, but my life. Yeah, and dude, I, you know, I took great back. pride in it. And I remember, totally. I remember this guy, this kid similar to you, this kid Lance showed up like 30 minutes late, you know, and he's a fucking high school kid. Of course he was late. It's God, God bless him for showing up to work. But I remember thinking like, you know, I remember thinking like, how dare you? Like you're 30, like, like, come on, man. Um, and, uh, that's where I was and, and it was, and it worked out for me. So, you know, you go forward and you've, you've got. What are some of the other things, if you could, some of the highlights? Because I got to let you go here in a couple minutes, but you just, you have so much good stuff to say. You know, some of the things well, that you so, share in your message today. I mean, well, today, just where I'm at is, is just, a, you know, I try to, to deliver my, you know, knowing what I know today um, that I didn't know then is that the demographic that, that we deal with, um, because now I'm, I'm completely submerged in the drug and alcohol culture, like just as much as I was before. Like I, I write books that pertain to my life, which is, you know, largely in part of uh, alcoholism addiction. I have a documentary coming out about my life. I'm a, an interventionist. I'm a motivational speaker. I, I work in the drug and alcohol treatment field, helping people get into treatment. I'm a sober guy. I sponsor guys. So my life is literally consumed by drugs and alcohol. The only difference is I, I don't use them today and I get paid from them. <laughs> it's very strange. <laughs> um, and, and, and I own these men's sober living houses. And, and the demographic that I deal with is, is largely defiant by nature. They hate authority and they refuse to conform because they possess a job that consists of knowing everything, such as I did. Yeah. So knowing what I'm up against, I try to deliver my message throughout my social media platforms and just the way that I conduct myself on a daily basis in a form of attraction rather than promotion, right? And and if I can get the people that I'm largely surrounded by, which are sick and suffering alcoholics and addicts for the most part, 
to what would I have so bad to, to find it so desire, desirable, so attractive, so appealing, so much so that they almost like want to fuck it, right? Like if I can get them to what would I have so bad that they're willing to do what I've done to get what I have, then the terms of their contract will forever change. But it has to be their idea. So so I simply just lived this really rad life that, that allowed me to do some of the most amazing things that I've ever done in my life. Um, and it all transpired from the worst day of my life. It, it literally all came from that day that I thought could never have gotten worse, um, which was standing in the basement of that Catholic Charities Rehab at 38 years old uh, as this 18-year-old tech thumbs through these donation boxes looking for some used underwear and I was praying to God that he found them. You know, I, 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 but I couldn't see the blessing that was taking place at the time. I was incapable um, because I was just so deluded by drugs, alcohol, and, and just delusion. Um, so today, what I really want people to understand is that the disease of addiction is not a fucking death sentence, right? And as long as you're breathing, it's never too late. Um, I'm a guy with over seven years sober, and 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 I was the guy that really believed that I'd be buried in that plot that my mother bought me years back. Um, so I just want people to understand that, that it's crazy to think, but the only time that I had the ability to, to win this fight was when I admitted defeat. And it's okay. I know it goes against like, everything that we we do and say and how we live because to be on the streets to, to fight is to survive to fight is to win to fight is to to get another bag yeah but then you come into sobriety to fight is to lose to fight is to die right so i had to admit defeat before i had a chance of victory and and that's what i want people to understand is that like that's that's where it all begins so you still, and by the way, you're back, you're skating again today. Yeah, totally. Uh, at 43, I'm about to release this part that I filmed over the last year, and it's literally the best part that I've ever put together that that can stand on its own when it, when it comes out. And the the, the, the houses are, are the Snowvax houses, and they're all over Westchester, right? Yeah, well, uh, Wilmington, Delaware. Okay. So I opened up. I opened up uh, the first Novak's house about a year and a half ago with 10 beds. And today I have four houses with 40 beds. And uh, I have an abundance of scholarships available for any man who, who's searching for, for a, a more structured environment to continue their sobriety and upon completion of, of whether it's a detox or residential or, or any level of care treatment center uh the, the my mission that i find myself on today is to refusing uh christ to be a deterrent for anyone seeking a better way of life so i have these beds with these i have these sober houses with these beds with scholarships so i literally have an amazing program that it's free if you're willing to do what it takes to to stay sober. We'll, we'll put all those contacts out there along with the phone number that you're just fucking giving out. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, and sometimes you will answer that phone if it doesn't go 
And if you can't get it, it goes to other folks who can help these young men out or just men in general. Last thing for you, what do you do? I mean, because you do have this aura. What do you do to maintain that? How, how do you keep it going? How, how do you keep that light burning? Because you've got yourself in a position now where, where, where you are appealing. How do you, how do you keep that happening? Well, the first thing is, and I always talk about it, is I keep my past married to my present. Because the moment that I forget the pain that brought me through the doors of treatment center number 13, it's not a matter of if I'll return, but when I'll return. So you keep your past married to your present. Yeah, because, and then that, what that allows me to do, it allows me to remain grateful for any fucking opportunity given to me. Good, bad, or indifferent. Because if you came from where I've come from, the, 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 the pain of this everyday life that we get is, is pretty minuscule compared to, you know, for me. Yeah, so, me too. So uh, what, what I try to do, and, and this is a, a work in progress, and, and, and more so lately because I've had a few, uh, a few instances where, where I wanted to revert back to some old behaviors and really beliefs, is I'm really praying um, for gratitude and forgiveness towards everyone and everything. And if I can find myself in line with those two words, literally 24 seven, I will have the most freeing life that anyone could ever think of. So that's, you know, I can add the gratitude the easy one for me, but forgiveness that's, you know, especially in business. Yeah. Um, that's a, that's a tough one. So I'm literally trying to live my life by those two words. And we're, and we're growing, dude. Like the more success you have, the more you're developing like that business acumen by making yourself mm-hmm. vulnerable to, to learning. Um, and that's life. Like we still have so much to learn, right? And, and it's okay. I heard a guy say on a meeting just this weekend, it's okay. And this guy's like 20, 30 years sober. And, you know, as far as I'm concerned, he's got it going on, right? In sobriety and in life. But he says it's okay. It's okay to know that you've got a lot more to work on. You know, it's okay. that that's that's fine. You don't live under this dark cloud that you're not you're not baked or you're not you're not done yet. You know, right? Yeah. <laughs> and that's the cool thing too. That the longer that I stay sober, the 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 less that I know. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's the longer I'm I'm around and the more and tune and align with with myself and my spirituality the reality is the less that i know about a lot uh gratitude and forgiveness brandon novak dude thank you so much for your time and thank you so much for what you're doing putting the word out there um absolutely making this deal attractive if it's okay with you man i'd like to leave two phone numbers one of which if anyone needs help getting into treatment they can call me directly at 610- Six hundred nine one seven four, and if any men out there are in need of sober living and are willing to relocate to Wilmington, Delaware, and we have beds available, call us directly three zero two four three three six two five six. And what's the other number again? The six one zero six one zero six hundred nine one seven four. And if you can just put like my uh, website down and that kind of takes you everywhere, which is uh, brandonnovak.com. Yeah. And I'm looking forward to the documentary and, and, and you know, the book is streets of Baltimore. Um, we'll put all yeah. that stuff down there, man. It's all, it's all, it's all really incredible stuff. The cool thing is for somebody like you, man, you carry 
an incredible message and you're a fascinating dude. So that these are the kind of stories we like to get out there so people know that, I mean, Superman rides the bus, dude. So I appreciate it. Yeah. I get it, man. Hey, thank you. I enjoyed talking to you. This is, uh, this is fun. Thanks so much for listening to The Payoff with Pete. Once again, I'm Pete Souza. And of course, we are part of the Rogue Media Network. All kinds of good podcasts you can find at roguemedianetwork.com. And of course, you can find this podcast and all those other ones wherever you get your podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, other spots like that. This has been a Rogue Media Podcast. Are you ready for a rewarding career in the electrical industry? Quality Electric of the Coastal Carolinas, QECC, is looking for qualified electricians and electrical helpers to join its Charleston team. QECC offers guaranteed full-time hours, make up to $30 per hour with possible performance bonuses and career growth opportunities. Enjoy benefits like health insurance, dental and vision coverage, 401k plans, and more. If you're a motivated, experienced electrician, this job is for you. QECC is an equal opportunity employer. For all job inquiries, send email to hr at qeccinc.com.